0: Well, hello everybody and welcome back to another week. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash redhillsrancher. Make sure you check the show notes for a link. This week, I'd like everybody to share the podcast with some of your friends, with some of your networks. Share one of your favorite episodes. It doesn't even have to be this one. And after you've done that, please go to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Five stars would be great. I'd get along with four just fine. So this week... We go visit with a self-proclaimed cowboy kid who shares his family history in the ranching business. We talk about mental health and having a relationship with livestock and how that relates to veganism. His name is Chip McGregor, and he's an Army vet with several tours in the Mideast. We get into the challenges of managing at scale and social connections, and we try to unpack how the merit of feeding a community got replaced by exploitive labor. So saddle up. Here we go. Hi, Chip. How are you this morning?
1: I'm doing fantastic. And yourself?
0: I'm doing pretty good. A uh, little early for me to start one of these uh, this morning, but it was uh, it was nice getting up, getting to see the sunrise, a little bit of fog, dew, whatever you want to call it, hanging over the grass. It's uh, probably about the only moisture I'm going to see for the next 30 days and about the only moisture I have seen for the last 30 days. So are you getting any rain over there?
1: Fantastic. Raining here. It's rained for about a day and a half. My neighbors really needed it. We've had, we've had pretty good, consistent rain once or twice a week uh, here in our little corner of southeastern Indiana, but literally the people that I buy hay from have been struggling. So it's we've just had this little rain cloud over us. It's going right now because I have old granny cows that are about to calve. And I was out checking them this morning. And, you know, and they're they want to go and hang out in the mud um, instead of go somewhere nice and dry to have a calf and uh so check them this morning have my coffee poured. things are going pretty good if i'm on a podcast i feel like i'm a pretty big deal being on the ranch and reboot podcast and it puts me in the same uh i'm now in the same class as fred 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 fred, fred Probenza, you know and uh, uh steve stratford i feel like i'm on the same level as them when it comes to to cow knowledge right <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know what that says about me because I don't know anything anymore. I don't know. I don't know (laughs) any more than I did when I started doing this.
1: Yeah. I can sum up my cattle. My, my ranching is, is what the hell do you mean? Just happened. How the hell did that just happen? That's the, that's sorry. That's our, that's our slogan around here. Like, what the hell do you mean? Just broke. So yeah, that's how we do it.
0: So you said you were in Southeast Indiana,
1: Southeastern Indiana. Yep. I'm, on the very very suburbs of cincinnati okay very 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 out as out as you can go
0: so if you're there by cincinnati louisville is just a stone's throw across the river
1: yep and then and i'm not equidistant between uh indy and cincinnati but but pretty close
0: so so but why why southeast indiana
1: well uh there's a couple of different reasons there's a big there's a big sociological reason that my family has followed the cattle business uh with the pioneers out to the Dakotas, um, you know, from the east out of the Dakotas, and we've been sloshing back east. And there's that, you know, I could give you that big spiel how how this is uh, this is a byproduct of the cattle industry in the United States is a Cowboys kid living in uh, southeastern Indiana. But the reality of the matter is I met a really hot chick and she's from southeastern Indiana. And uh and uh here I am. So yeah, my mom called me up one time. She said, "Hey, there's this girl I'd really like you to meet. She's, it's pretty, and she's a cowgirl, and I was cowgo- I was cowboying out with her in Colorado, and uh, she said, and she's a writer, and she's a published writer, and you know, she just like you guys would just get along great." And I said, "Cowgirl from Colorado? I bet she has a," I said, "I bet she looks like a female John Elway." And she's like, "Look her up on Facebook or whatever you're on now." So I did, and she didn't look anything like John Elway. So uh, here I am, southeastern Indiana
0: okay so how did i take it there's a roundabout story on how you got there
1: there is there is um came out of the military in 2016. uh what branch came out of the army i'm Uh, sorry i was navy yeah i know i know it's 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 hard to i yeah i know
0: I, i won't hold that against you so what did you do in the army
1: uh i didn't i didn't sleep in metal boxes with other men repeatedly uh but the uh uh and Brian was in the navy and they're gross in the navy if anybody's listening they don't understand that joke but uh, the uh so came out of the military and uh i've always uh always had an eye on ranching i, w- I was going to be a rancher right up until september 11th september 11th happened with the military um thought i was going to be there for three years come home chase home coming queen around have a ticket tape parade and lo and behold the global war on terrorism my part of it lasted for better than 15 years. I got my last group of guys back from Afghanistan. I called my Sergeant Major up. I was playing pre first first sergeant at the time. I called my Sergeant Major and said, hey, I'm out of here. And uh, he didn't let me go for another year. So um, the whole time that I was in the military, I had you know uh, older family members passing away and transitioning ranches and lease property. And I knew that the likelihood of going back to ranch country and being able to compete with other people to lease land and buy land it was pretty, pretty unlikely. There's just too much competition. So I set my sights for Central Minnesota. Um, have some family around there, and I'm uh, kind of half, kind of sort, of uh, and set my sights out there. Kind of started getting myself set up ranching. Um, met Liz the uh, same year I got out of the military. Uh, spent two years building, uh, building the business that could support a ranch and uh, moved east to chase because the, the competition for land in central Minnesota, lease land and that kind of thing is still high enough where it can be cost prohibitive to get into a lot of the stuff. Get back here to Indiana and there is very little cattle industry. Land to lease is pretty available. So it's, it's just not as, not as competitive an environment.
0: I would imagine there's a lot of little parcels there where you're at in Indiana that aren't quite worthwhile to drag a 600 horse John Deere across, or just aren't going to raise a good, just aren't big enough to farm anymore. Is, is yeah, that kind well, of the case?
1: Well, that, you know, the economics of farming around here is a lot of the, there's a lot of farmers trying to get going, and um, you know, uh, there's there's a guy that's farming hillsides right by us, you know, and half of this fertilizer is going down the creek and he's farming with a 1086 because he's, he's trying to get going and he's on land that I think would be pretty hard to make, a you know, to make money on. So everybody's desire to go fence row to fence row, uh, you know, the old Earl butts thing, um, it certainly applies in Indiana. But what they don't have is they don't have the labor that's required to go and clear fence lines, build fence or deal with cows. Um, you know, they just, the people around here, because, you know, calves will be 600 weight calves will be back 20, 30 cents from where good cattle markets are, you know, really? from, from, yeah, they'll be, so if you look at that, that's, it is pretty stinking hard to make a living in cattle. So a lot of people own cattle as a hobby. And then when their hobby starts costing too much money or their health cannot support that hobby, then they'll get out. And, uh, and if I play my cards right and I have my ear to the ground, I can i can rent that land before the fences are all grown up and that kind of thing so and 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 another big part of this another really big part of this is i live between three cities that have a population of a million plus and i'm in the grass-fed beef business
0: so you you, that's a small advantage
1: yeah so that that's that's a that's a you know being in the grass-fed beef business in southern north dakota where the rest of my family is guess what everybody's in the grass-fed beef business and everybody gets a quarter of beef every christmas you know, like that's, 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 a, that's a currency for relationships is, is, is uh, you know, something that got, something that was hanging from the front end loader, you know. So, um, yeah, this, this, is, this is a very deliberate move on my and Liz's part to be in the cow business out here, in the cattle business.
0: I Still interested. Well, I mean, we could, we could kind of dive into some of the socioeconomics of ranching and why that, why that pushed you back to the east and i agree with what you're saying and and so you got out of the army what did you say 15 16 And 16 so i i got out of the navy in 06 so okay. the costs in 2006 the land cost still were fairly reasonable i would i'd, I'd say a lot more reasonable than we, than they were you know 10 years later um around here there was a round of of oil exploration and leasing uh, between 2010 and 2014 that really drove a lot of land price up, but things were pretty good until about then. Um, And my dad's always talked to me about the cost of production and about, you know, cows can't buy the ranch, cows can't buy the ranch. I've been hearing that forever. And, you know, the economics of it just simply don't work. I mean, and the economics of, of buying land with cattle hasn't worked in my area probably since, gosh, I'd, I'd probably say since the 80s because there was a piece of ground, um, there's a piece of ground that adjoins me that's for sale right now. Um, that, you know, I, of course, I looked at the listing and the price and I laughed at it because I know that in 1980. 1983, 1984 somewhere along there my dad and my grandmother passed up buying that property for 35 dollars an acre yep and now it's over a thousand dollars an acre like well over a thousand dollars an acre right and well
1: it land is land is a as specul- a is a vehicle to speculate on uh and to and to stash some capital in but yeah it, it might be fantastic because they're not going to make any more of it
0: but the, I can't uh, disagree on that point that land is a great quote investment. It's a place to put money, to let it grow. But what happens to the people that are using that land as a means of production to produce protein for the world, our costs keep going up due to no fault of our own.
1: Absolutely. And and then, and then what happens is the, the, the small towns and the cultural fabric is hollowed out or torn or rend apart. And then all of a sudden we have a society of people that are so removed from the agriculture production or animal husbandry or all these things that we've had for thousands of years. You know, the Alexander family and the McGregor family, you know, we we were select, you know, we were genetically selected to to get along with livestock for the last for hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay. Um and then Uh, And now we've all of a sudden we've had this livestock taken away from us. You know, let's say everybody except you you and I are the are the are the two percent that that still own moo cows. You know, so let's let's
0: just say that I feel like a large majority of people with uh, neurodiverse minds need to get the hell out of the city and go be with livestock.
1: Right. And it's and it's uh, pretty simply, you know, having a farm. As a tax write-off is a and and I'm on I'm 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 currently sitting on a farm that started out as a tax write-off and uh, uh, and you there's no way you could run cattle on on you could not buy land and run cattle on it here in southeastern Indiana Uh, you know hillsides are going for well over ten thousand dollars an acre Mm. but uh, you know that's you know, the person that's going to buy that place next to you is probably going to do it for a tax write-off or so they could have an estate or some other kind of thing like that. And then that's going to be one less family that's going to be part of that fabric. And, uh, and that family that's part of that, that would be part of that fabric in your town, uh, would move to town. They would, uh, they would become farther removed from, um, animal husbandry, from, uh, animal companionship Where I think that it's, uh, it's, companionship is sharing of bread that's that's the etymology of the word companionship okay and so so when you have a companion animal uh you're sharing in when we when we say companion animal the word companion is we're sharing in 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 nutrition so okay. uh so the alexander you know the cornantes on the alexander place you guys are you guys are all in it together so you know and some in and, and uh uh and when you remove somebody from that, there's a significant amount of studies and that have taken place over the years that I'm pretty familiar with, because my time running a company in the army, um, you know, when we were having everyone always hears about the 22 veteran suicides a day. Okay, that's something that we focused a lot. You know, right about 2014, that was a big focus of the noncommissioned officer corps in all of the military. And, uh, you know, guys like me, we were sitting in in front of the, um, you know, we were sitting in front of the uh, grade or regimental commander's desk on Monday morning talking about this stuff every stinking Monday. So I got pretty sharp on it, came out of the military and started writing about it uh, and doing some research on it. And um, there is, there's very few studies that, that laid out, but there is, a, there is a really good association between. Being around farming, being around livestock, having better mental health outcomes—I
0: I can believe that 100%.
1: And then the Congress—if you want—if you—if you want the perfect recipe to go and make your drive yourself absolutely nuts and, and go, you know, have your brain stop working in the manner that it was supposed to—go become a vegan. That's—that's that's, if you—if you're really interested in convinced in in turning yourself crazy, stop eating meat. And go start looking at animals as you know as everything is a puppy dog.
0: Okay, I, I get that, and you're not going to convince me to quit eating meat that veganism is the right way. And I know that's not not what you're all about. So why do you say that?
1: Well, I'm saying that veganism is a way to drive yourself nuts. So that's that's you know we're coming at the angle of you need to have livestock around you. Um, we know that it helps people that are we know that it helps people with mental illness, and we know that removing yourself from a relationship with livestock, which, as far as I'm concerned, is what veganism is. Okay. So we're, we're looking at, we don't see them as coriander cows. We see them as puppy dogs that are in a pasture. Okay. We have that same, so all animals are all this. We need to have that amount of empathy with animals and stop having a relationship with them in nutrition, a nutritional relationship and, uh, your outcomes as a vegan. So a vegan goes against livestock, is removed from livestock and they have very very bad mental health outcomes.
0: Does any argument for vegan for being a vegan make any sort of sense to you at all on any level?
1: Yes. Every yes, every one of them have 10% 10% of every vegan argument is absolutely absolutely nuts on 100% correct. There's okay. a shred in every little bit of it. Absolutely.
0: What are what are some of those that stick out to you that you've heard?
1: um, well, let's talk about, well, I mean, let's, let's go, let's go to where the rubber really meets the road, you know, animal, animal processing, kill plants. Okay. Okay. Process. So, uh, everything. So, uh, a steer comes off the Alexander place, goes to a feedlot. Okay. Every, every step of that way. Once he steps off of your trailer. Okay. So let's say he gets on a, gets on a cattle pot on the Alexander place goes to a feedlot. Every one of them processes that takes place could that once that animal steps off of your trailer is could be a um, uh, part of a documentary on why to be a vegan they put it in the feedlot pump it full of antibiotics pump it full of all kinds of stuff go and put it in a confined space you know feed it multiple times a day to get stand up and go to feed you know and and take it to a when it's close to finish that animal's going to be so close to unhealthy that you know if you have a a minor Weather event, it might it might kill a good portion of them off. Then it gets on a cattle pot, in the heat, you know, gets hauled. You know, right now coming out of Kansas, you know, your cattle might end up in Green Bay. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, who knows? Kids, They they might, according to something with some coriander in it, might end up in Green Bay. And uh, and then once it gets to Green Bay, you know, the whole that whole process. We have all this stuff that uh, you know we have. Uh, we've tried to make all these processes. Where they're visible, like in the kill plants, and where the money's at, we've tried to make them better. But in reality, a hundred years ago, your critter might have gotten on a train and gone, you know, gone to Omaha. I don't know where you guys sent the cattle. but like, I guess you're close enough. To Don. I,
0: I don't know where we sent them either. I was but,
1: but from the McGregor place, they got on a train and they went to South St. Paul. So from North right. Dakota to South St. Paul, um, they had it. They had. I don't think they had a stop for water between North Dakota and Minnesota. They got off there, they got kind of recovered, they got kind of sorted out. Then many of them went off to some little corn farmer where they got finished, and then they went to a local butcher shop. They probably went to that local butcher shop on their side. So they were probably going, you know, they're gonna go looking forward to a grain bucket and they, you know, and they caught something between the eyes. So the process that we had a hundred years ago was absolutely, absolutely more humane. So if we're gonna the way that the the steers that I grew up eating. They were going out and they were, hey, it was time to get fed. All the family was over. It was time to get fed. Mom went and said goodbye to them. Maybe the little kids went and said goodbye to them. Dad walked out there with a grain bucket. When they stuck their head in the grain bucket, you know, they caught lead poison. So that you know, it, so their their last act was oh, finally grain. You know, please, I've been so
0: not being stressed out. Walking up into a into a ramp into a noisy place that they've never been before, being stressed out. So.
1: So that, and why do we have this whole process? Well, we have it for well, there's there's a lot of financial reasons that I think are basically subsidies. But the USDA drives a lot of this. If I wanted to, so I have people come up to me all the time at farmers' markets and say, "I just want to not feel bad about eating meat," and I and I have a process to bring the stress out of my steers when they go before they go to processing, and I explain it to these to these folks, um, but. I remind them, you know, the USDA is in the way for me doing this at my place and having the, and having the least stress. I mean, there's, there's nothing happier in the world than an animal that's about to stick his nose in a feed bucket.
0: Yeah, pretty much.
1: So that's, you know, Hey, that's their last act on earth can be, can be heaven on earth, you know, but I can't do that. That is, that is illegal. Um, and I think that, I think that consumers should have a vote in that I'm not. I, I would be very concerned about some of the people that, you know, how that could go. We have we have protections in the industry for a reason, but those protections that we've had have been degraded considerably.
0: I, I would agree that most of the protections that we've had that were put in place in the aftermath of Upton Sinclair's book, what was it, Into the Jungle? Yep, The Jungle. The Jungle his book exposing, you know, the abuses of the meat packers over a hundred years ago. And what's interesting to note is when they originally wrote Packers and Stockyards, there were five meat packers that had 60% control over the meat market. And now we've got four approaching 80 to 85% control, but that's not a problem according to Packers and Stockyards Act. And I get that that's, you know, that's a whole other can of worms to open up is, you know, current situation, but how we got here, you know, that's always, that's always an interesting story of how we got here with the you know, wave of consolidations in the eighties and through the nineties. Yep. I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about more. I'm thinking about the hog industry because I just finished listening to a book Mike Calicrate recommended called Wasteland. It's about, um, hog farming and the hog lawsuits just a couple of years ago down in Eastern North Carolina um, where they were spraying it, it, it. The basis of the lawsuits was it was a nuisance claim because um, some of the neighbors of the hog farms were getting overspray when they're spraying hog manure on the fields or getting on their houses, on their, you know, clotheslines on the porch, whatever. That's, you know, okay. When you say it like that, it's not that big a deal. Well, I think we both have a good understanding of what hog odor is, especially from, you know, a 5,000 head hog barn or four or 5,000 head hog barns that have a common lagoon, how bad that can smell. And I'm not quite finished with the book yet. I've got a couple of chapters yet. Um, and it, it kind of tracks along with how I've always run the ranch, okay? I can do whatever I want on my property but I can't affect my neighbors, you know? Yeah. I could build a dam on the Creek, right? Literally on my fence line. Am I within my rights to do that? Yeah. Would I probably have to go get a permit for NRCS because government regulations. Yeah. But technically I could build a pond on the Creek on the fence line, build a dam as tall as I want and stop all that water from going to my neighbor. Is that the right thing to do? No, that's absolutely not right. And we lose sight of these of these decisions about what we should do to our neighbor or what we can legally do to our neighbor. And when we lose a sense of community, you don't care about your neighbor because you don't know them. They're just a nameless, faceless corporation of an absentee landowner that lives halfway across the continent. Why should I care about that guy?
1: So well, I, yeah. If the Alexander Corporation had enough money, they could absolutely have no problem whatsoever doing exactly what you wanted to do. They could throw enough lawyers at your little counties, uh at your at your county and your state where they could absolutely get away with whatever you wanted to do. So that that sense of community, we've replaced the merit of community with the merit with a meritocracy of money, which is which is which is which is what we have.
0: money is kind of the evil part of the system and there's there's problems with our money and we don't have to get into that um but it it,
1: might i guess let me let me rephrase my point bill gates can get away with things that the alexanders can't get away with
0: yeah because he has lawyers to hide behind he's got you know a corporate he's got llc over here he's got this business over here he's got this s corp and this s corp it's No, it was like, it's like Smithfield Foods and, you know, Murphy Brown LLC and their different little entities that they've got. It's all just a shell game and a corporate veil to hide liability. Well, why can't we take advantage of that? There's nothing saying we can't take advantage of that. The only problem is we don't have the time to figure it out. Nobody's standing beside, nobody's going to pull us aside to tell us. And all that shit's expensive to get set up because you got to pay the people to file the paperwork. You know, we don't have that kind of time. So, you know, us as people, small business owners, we're exposed to a lot more li- potential liability because we can't afford to set up a complex corporate structure.
1: Yep, yep, very true. And we and and there's, you know, in the in in most industries, there's you know, when you get big enough and you can self-insure. You just have enough assets where some you know where you can self-insure. Well, I gotta I gotta cut I gotta cut a check to an insurance guy. He's a wonderful person, uh, but you know, that's, he needs his check every month for me to, to continue to have a, you know, some. Yeah. And and your insurance cost
0: goes down every year, right? Because you don't make claims and you're a good upstanding citizen that goes, that premium goes down every year, right?
1: Yeah, no, we find actually what happens is we find new and different types of insurance we have to buy every single year because the, and, and, and it gets to the point where I think that that's the only people that are making a living oftentimes, you know, we have all this liability insurance, every type of insurance in the world and the insurance companies are doing really well. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot about insurance, but that's, yeah, we, the small guy is most certainly uh, more exposed than, uh, than the big guy. And that's, and and that's our own doing. That's absolutely our our own doing. Um, You know, in the last, last look, we're going to, I don't want to talk about regenerative agriculture let's talk about something that's that's much less uh, controversial like politics okay. uh, <laughs> or religion if you want to do religion we can do that but i know if we talk just well, we'll stay away from
0: religion we can get into politics today. I,
1: if uh, if we talk regenerative agriculture everybody will be mad and sending you hate mail and stuff like that
0: all you right
1: know? so I, so let's just stick with politics.
0: Programmed a good spam filter for that
1: yeah let's let's just stick to politics um but in minnesota so in the last election, in in in, the, in uh, they, they had the the Democratic Party is called the Democratic Farm and Labor Party, okay. And what it was is a socialist party that came out of the Dakotas uh, and and filtered into Minnesota back literally started in the Dakotas, came into Minnesota, bumped up against all the guys that worked on the docks in Duluth and the Mississippi River, and that was the Democratic Farm and Labor Party, and they're just as stinking socialist as possibly could be reason being is these guys in the 1800s they knew that they needed to be they needed to have uh, they needed to be together you know their, their individual communities needed to together that's you know cenex cooperative all these cooperatives that are now big nameless faces corporations they started out as some farmers you know coming together to get some buying power or get some you know lobbying power get something done in the you know in the halls of power and now those cooperatives, now the Democratic Farm and Labor Party, it's still called that in Minnesota. It has very, very little to do with farmers whatsoever. The last congressman that was the big the, the 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 last Minnesota congressman that was a big, hey, I'm going to get the pork. I'm the I'm I'm the pork delivery guy. Uh, you know, he he was uh he was a DFL, he was a Democrat. And just because he was Democrat, he uh, he got kicked out of office. Uh he got beat very soundly by um Just kind of one of these, uh, uh, you know, this really rural uh, Trump congressperson that, you know, just came in with a bunch of conspiracy theories and things like that, really didn't have anything to say. And the whole time he's saying, hey, listen, the reason that we have all this good stuff in this farming, in this major farming in the Red River Valley on the eastern side, the reason we have this stuff is because I went and got it. Do not forget that. And so, you know, the socialists have been replaced in rural America. because our population has been and I'm not I'm not saying socialism is a good thing but that was a, that was a form of collective action where where a group of people could compete with the Bill Gates of the world that's that was their solution 100 years ago I'm most definitely not a socialist
0: I'm not a socialist either but and I'll, I I guess we could say this there's a few good ideas in socialism they're just taken way too far
1: yeah yeah no I I'm I'm a humongous fan of socialism, but it inevitably comes down to, hey, well, we got to go shoot these guys that don't get along with us. And, uh, you know, which everybody has. But socialists, they've they've made it they've they've turned it into an art form of uh, of getting rid of people that don't agree with them. So, well,
0: that's 90 percent of what government does is getting enough people to agree to go shoot the people that don't agree.
1: Yep. And what did you do in the Navy?
0: I was an engineer, (laughs) sir. I was not a trigger man. I just made the boat go. Just okay. Other people pointed it. I just made sure it could <laughs> go A to B at the right speed. So I was I was all pumps, pipes, valves, anchor, windlass, uh, steering gear, main propulsion, fuel pump. Okay. Um, my my first enlistment, I was on the USS Enterprise. Okay. And, um, that was that was interesting because we literally owned gear. All the way from one end to the other end, all the way from the bottom to the top. So we had the anchor windlass all the way up in the forecastle. We had the aft steering gear all the way at the back of the boat. We had winches on both sides, like for underway replenishment. We had we had the boat davits. Um we had this stupid crane called the the boat. It was we called it the B and A crane. Um and it was it was a terrible piece of machinery. The other cool things we had. We had the aircraft elevators, which um, the machinery for those is kind of cool. Doing the maintenance on them underneath the flight deck—that's another story for another time. Uh, but we also had—we were my shop was responsible for um, an elevator that went from the hangar bay level all the way to the top of the island. Now it was the captain's elevator, and somehow I got into a position where. I was the guy doing maintenance on the captain's elevator and I got my own personal key for the captain's elevator. So whenever I wanted to go up to the top of vultures row, up at the top of the Island to watch them do flight ops, especially at night, I didn't have to walk up 13 flights of stairs to get there. I could take the elevator. Nice. (laughs) Very nice.
1: Hey, that Congressman I was talking about if anybody wants to look it up is Colin Peterson. And he was over in the Minnesota red river Valley um big big farm area and uh i don't i don't have his wikipedia page up or anything like that he was beat in 27 he was replaced by michelle Fishbach, who her whole campaign was like i support trump and he supports me and uh and the colin peterson you know the the pork delivery guy he uh he was he was taken out so uh i think that says that was, that was kind of, that says something about our politics and about the, the, I don't know about the little guy, but it started out, they were, they were on the side of the little guy and that's where they got their votes. So.
0: Do you think we, we have anybody in government that actually understands agriculture? I mean, that understands not just not just what the lobbyists and industry organizations tell them that, you know, well, we've got this much production from this ground, but actually understand agriculture down to a fundamental soil level.
1: So Joni Ernst in Iowa, Senator from Iowa, uh, she, so she kind of comes vetted by me. She's married to an army ranger and we know, we know people in common. Um, and so when she, and she and, and and when she ran for office, so she she came out fire and brimstone, and you know she came in with the Tea Party, you know, and, I, and I, so I kind of called her I was like, "Hey, do you guys know this guy?" Like, you know, like, "Oh yeah, he's a hell of a good guy." And They're you know they're actual actual farmers in Iowa, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think the minute that you become a senator, you I think when you step off the farm, you just get inundated with all of these people that have some political agenda that they really need, you know, I think I think the noise, the static goes up to a million. And then, you know, the Chip McGregors and, and Brian Alexanders of the world, they really stop mattering when it comes right down to it. Because I don't have time to make go and make a bunch of noise. I got I got old granny cows in her cabin and uh and my next my next contribution to a campaign is going to be a campaign for getting another one of these stand up freezers put in behind me. You know, so um yeah, it's, but, just, it's just. isn't that we, their plan keep,
2: keep
0: us that. busy isn't that their plan keep us busy enough like if you keep the tax slaves busy enough they won't revolt they won't have time to look up
1: but i don't so here i have an issue with their you're the first the first time you, i've heard you say it but there's some but you're going to get the full brunt of the my frustration with the term who is they you said that isn't that their plan who is okay. they?
0: i i get what you're saying and I'm not one of those people that think that, there's, that there is a vast global conspiracy of lizard people that are ruining the world. I, I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a conspiracy theorist because I can see what's going on in the world and say, hey, these stimmies are going to cause inflation. No, you're just a crazy conspiracy theorist. Okay, whatever. I get that is there, there there's not a shadowy cabal there's not a, a dark smoke-filled room full of people that are running shit when i say they i'm just kind of overall referring to the people that are in charge and not anybody in specific or a specific body that is like colluding to uh, colluding to bring about a certain future does that make sense sure okay So now what what was I saying for that?
1: So so you are talking about, they. we were talking about a senator goes and they get so much noise coming from all these different aspects of the ag world that they probably didn't know existed or, you know, didn't realize that there was, you know, they had that much voice and they forget about the the McGregor's and the Alexander family.
0: Uh, Some of it, managing at scale is hard. It's very hard, you know, we're both we're both good managers in our own right on our own little postage stamp of dirt with our own little handfuls of cows and no matter how big or important we both think we are in the grand scheme of life in the grand scheme of that you know how much land area is in the united states the size of the united states cow herd neither one of us are anything like we're not even we're not even an ingrown hair on a gnat's ass yep for as important as we think we are. You get elected to even, even to state government. Okay. Right here, sitting in my studio. I have a fairly, fairly compact circle of concern. You know, things that I can affect things that I need to be concerned about. You know, I have a very compact circle of influence, you know, things that I can change when you, when you get into government, That scope has to broaden out a lot, I mean, a huge, huge margin. So the attention that I have and the attention that I can give my postage stamp, if I had to go to Congress, even the state Congress, I don't get more attention. I don't get more mental bandwidth, right? We don't get any more of that. You know, you wake up in the morning, you've got X amount of mental energy that you're going to spend through the day, okay? I choose to spend it on my grass and cows, so I can put a lot of energy into a very compact situation. When you're managing at scale, you have the same mental energy budget to apply to a much, much larger area of problems. And they don't have mental energy to apply to it. They got to have aids that have to you know, that tell them facts. Human mind is faulty. We've all played the telephone game. You know, where you get 50 people in a line, and at one end, you say, Johnny called Susie, and by the time you get to the other end, it's Frank and Bob went on a date, okay? Nope. You know, these messages get messed up and lost, and lost and confused in translation. So you'll have, I guess I don't know what I'm, I'm kind of losing my point here, um, but it's hard to manage. It, it's a fantastically hard challenge to manage at scale. And we've never done it. i never have. I mean,
1: and I, and I think that it's especially hard for somebody that is a farmer, and they've been, you know, like, hey, they're the damn expert at putting, you know, quarter curl panels together. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe someone is better served to have having, you know, your your senator would probably be more effective if his background was he was the captain of the Enterprise and was able to delegate and manage different systems. You know, that would make him a better senator than some, you know, dumb farmer that's been, you know, trying to make irrigation work or keep stock decks full, you know, uh, you're just not, you're not, you're not set up for it, uh, you know, to go and to go and manage a staff, have a chief of staff, have, you know, five uh, V-level people that are managing major projects for you, you know, and you check in with them three times a week, you know, so
0: sometimes I kind of have a hard time really thinking about how a large top-down management structure should work, because I don't think they do. I, th- I think that that's kind of almost a a waste of mental energy from time to time, because top-down structures that are managed from the top down they always fail, and what works and what's worked throughout history are small communities that are managed either from the bottom up or collectively for that, you know, for the future of that, of that group. And they share a collective vision of how to manage the resources and how they're going to manage the resources in the future. And once your community gets past a certain size, that bottom up management doesn't work anymore. And, that, that kind of coincides with the breakdown of social fabric. Once your community passes about 200 people, I think those social community, those social connections start to break down because a human can only maintain about 150 social connections. That that That's, that's what I've read. Some people are less. I'm probably like way <laughs> way on the bottom end of that scale. Some people are really going and they're way more fine. I'm not that guy, but it, it's being able to maintain the social connections and and take care of one another and know what the other people in your community need versus what you think they need. I mean, community gets big enough, you don't have time to listen to it. You don't know everybody. And you start making assumptions, you start telling yourself stories. And I think the important part is that the most important part in that whole spiel is probably what's most often overlooked. It's the community needs to have a common vision on how to manage their shared resources. So what's that look like? Like is that 80% of people agreeing on 80% of the stuff or is that a simple majority? And I think instead of thinking about things in terms of, well, left and right, Democrat, Republican, 50, 50, winner and loser, I think we need to be thinking about trying to build more of like an 80% consistent, uh, 80% consistency. Like Get 80% of the people to agree with 80% of what you say. And I think you might have something.
1: Yeah. And that, 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 that's in keeping with a lot of different things. You know, let's circle back to, we were talking about veganism and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we brought up the jungle by Upton Sinclair and the book, the jungle by Up and Sinclair is not about the hogs on the large wheel being dismembered uh, in this factory. It is about Jurga's moving these, uh, I think the Lithuanian. Uh, it's a story of this family that moves to the United States or taken advantage of. It opens at a wedding where Jurga, I think his name is Jurga. It's been, it's been a little bit since I've read it. So it's actually about the rending apart of, of a culture or of a family, and they come out of their culture into the culture of Chicago, and they uh, all kinds of care, they get get sold a bill of goods on the house, they all go broke, and and then they, some of them kind of get their, you know, they go through all this trouble, they get kind of get their crap together, and then that's kind of the story of America. But what Upton Sinclair was writing about is how we are taking advantage of how we are treating these people like animals. That was the problem. And he had to use the,
0: the exploited of, immigrant labor.
1: Yep. Exploited immigrant labor. And he even said in interviews after the fact, he said it wasn't about the stinking conditions in the, in the slaughter plants. It was how we're treating these the immigrant labor, which, you know, we've just replaced the, those, the, I think they're Lithuanians. We've replaced them with uh, migratory workers, you know, like that's, that is one of the stories of America. So that community, is that that culture, that Lithuanian culture that they brought with them that they're dancing in this wedding in the beginning of the book? It's just that's just it being rend apart. And what's happening now uh, to uh, your community and to the community of the North, the, the community that the McGregors are from in North Dakota, is it's being rend apart. And everybody thinks that, well, we're still here, we're doing bigger and better than ever, and it's not going to happen to us. And in reality, you can look through the history of the United States and it all, I mean, Grapes of Wrath, you know, Hemingway and Steinbeck, are all talking about people that are being displaced. People that are being displaced.
0: And those aren't new stories.
1: No, and and it's happening, and it's and people are like, well, that'll never happen to me. There's no way that'll ever happen to me. And at the same time, you know, the big tractor manufacturers come out, look at this. Look at this thing we can do. We don't need a farmer anymore. You know, and like and look at this this spray right here. Like we can we can do all this without, you know, some jerk that can't read good it's hard to get along with we like hey that's so you know my dad said they never should have made a tractor big, larger than the 4020 mm-hmm. that would have saved most of rural america
0: i mean you could even say a 9n ford or a farmall m should have been the biggest track i
1: think i think old Ben, i think they said nothing bigger than the yeah the little, the little the little gray fords i think i think i've heard that same kind of thing but um yeah and now is that
0: the, the other six commodity farmers that listen, just went click and turned us off. Yeah.
1: Well, the yeah, the last, we just killed off the last, the last of that part of your audience, but the, the reality of the matter is, is, you know, if we said, guess what, here's our limit on tractor size, you know, we then I don't know.
0: That ever driven by I mean, that, an Amish that, community.
1: That makes, that makes socialism look pretty dang good. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm like, Ooh, well, hold on now. You know, so
0: you ever go by uh, an Amish like, community and check out their machinery?
1: Uh, my dad used to sell lots and lots of horses to the Amish and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, but we, you know, we take a look at, we, so that's a religious thing. We're predominantly talking about culture when we're talking about ranching, you know, uh, you,
0: you, you can't talk about culture without talking about religion because when you're talking about the Amish, their religion, their religion is intertwined with their culture.
1: And right, well that's all, all.
0: Even you and I, okay. I don't want to talk about you, I'll talk about me. I'm not very religious, but there is there's a lot of judeo-christian philosophy and thinking that are intertwined, you know, into my culture. That's yes. who I am. And yep. you know, we're we're talking about we're just talking about the Upton Sinclair's book into the jungle and you're absolutely right. It's not about the conditions in the meatpacking plant. They're described as horrible, but the story is really about the story of immigrant labor and how they're taking advantage of in these packing houses. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. And I was sitting here and I made a few notes that modern agriculture, like whether we're talking about the chicken industry, whether we're talking about pork, whether we're talking about commodity crops or whether we're talking about the cattle industry that we've had for the last, well, let's just say, eight years, it it's all based on exploited labor. It's based on exploited labor. It's based on externalized costs, and it's based on underpaid labor, and it's not possible without massive government subsidies. Yes. Now, let's start to unpack some of that. Let's just focus on on that labor side of it. Okay. So a hundred years ago in the Chicago meat, meat plants, it was a lot of Eastern Europeans that came over uh, Latvians, a lot of Polish too, I think. And now we move, we moved all the packing plants out to Western Kansas, out to the, you know, Texas, Oklahoma panhandles. Yep. We moved them there because that's where we built the feedlots. Why did we build the feedlots there? Because it doesn't rain. And there's a lot of water for irrigation. Yep. I mean, we can get into the, We can open that can of worms here in a little bit. Um, so we move the packing plants out to where nobody's living there. So how do we, well, let's get them staffed, bring up people from the South. And this isn't, this isn't like a dig on any kind of an immigrant at all. This is just pointing out the, the obvious flaw in the system that it doesn't work without exploited labor meat plants don't work without exploited labor that work below the cost i mean below the cost of what you know an american citizen would generally work at people want to come here for the opportunity and they want to work in those meat plants but nobody here wants to do it because it's oh it's dirty work it's you know it's a lot of blood and you know packing plant be the last place i'd want to work If we're picking out jobs as a 16-year-old in in school and they had all the jobs lined up, you know, like they probably should have, meat plant worker wouldn't be one of them. But if there is a sheet that said artisan butcher right next to meat plant assembly line worker, I might read that description and say, oh, well, this guy stands on a line and makes one cut every day. You know, makes one cut 600 times. This guy makes 600 different cuts on one carcass and he turns you know, he extracts value from this thing that used to be living and is going to provide sustenance for people. And he extracts maximum value for that. But they didn't talk about meat cutters when we were kids, when we were going through school, that wasn't an option. Go to college. If you don't go to college, you won't have a degree. You won't know anything. Nobody will ever hire you. Which has also led to an entire generation with useless college degrees that they can't pay for. Right. I I guess that's another, that's another, um, conversation entirely. So to kind of continue on this whole exploited labor conversation. So in the beef industry, our exploited labor is in the packing plants. Our exploited labor yep. is the hobby farmer. Yep. Our our exploited labor is the hobby farmer that's an insurance salesman in town that keeps five cows in their backyard and feeds hay all year. And doesn't know his cost of production. If you're listening to this and you're offended by what I just said, I'm sorry. But the truth is the truth. If you're selling, if you're taking your calves to the barn and you don't know how much money you've got in them, you're hurting the business for the rest of us. 100%. So it's people that are in this that are raising livestock as a hobby that. We have to compete against that. Those of us running a business have to compete against. So that's exploitation okay. of labor. We take a look at um, if you listen, if you read the book "The Meat Racket" by Christopher Leonard. It talks about the chicken industry. Primarily focuses on a chicken industry. Tyson's yeah. chicken houses in Northwest Arkansas. You don't like there aren't guys that look like you and me in there. Like we're talking immigrant labor that works 20 hours a day to barely break even, you know, on these horrible contracts, horrible terms, you know, lenders, all the, all the worst stuff. It's the same with hog farmers in North Carolina. You know, how long is it going to be before we're replaced? I don't think we'll get replaced because cattle take up too much land. The Packers don't need to chickenize the beef industry, we already did it for them.
1: Yeah, well, we have been replaced. We have been replaced in the feedlots. We absolutely have been replaced in the feedlots. You know, the cattle feeder, uh, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know how large a cattle feeder was in 1960, but I think that I would have to imagine that 500 head was a pretty stinking big operation. And I realize it was still, you know, you know, since the fifties, we've had big feedlots,
0: but, I think it you know, was like 1954, 55 when yep. the first modern big feedlot was built down by Hereford, Texas.
1: And do you know why it was built? What what the what the what the business decision was that drove that?
0: Um, I probably could come up with something, but it would be bullshit and not the truth. So why don't you tell me? What no,
1: it, it was so I, I I will I will cite this if you need it for your show notes later. But it it was put into place because it was one of the I think it was first hormone treatment for cattle came about and the, and the money people, the you know, the bean counter said, Hey, look at that. Now this thing makes sense. And it was, uh, and, and that, that treatment, that hormone treatment was, uh, was, you know, very quickly found to be very detrimental for human health. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was driven. It was driven by pharmaceuticals.
0: Some reason I'm sitting here thinking, okay, that I'm like, just, I'm trying to, put some puzzle pieces together and I'm not sure they quite fit well. So I we might have to talk this out. So mid fifties, we built feedlots. We built first big feedlots down around Hereford, Texas, and it didn't take more than probably just a few months before they started sprouting up like mushrooms after a spring rain. And the, the, the growth hormone, like the, an early growth hormone, I hadn't necessarily heard that. I remember, I remember when Rauro came out in the eighties, Yep. and that was i think i remember remember the cattleman back in the 80s talking about the oh this is so much better than that crap we used to use it's so much better so much better okay so there's a puzzle piece so through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s we've discovered feedlots we're starting to stuff cattle into these feedlots You know, and they're they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is before Temple Grandin did a lot of her work. So feedlots are getting bigger. Animal performance is probably starting to drop off, but it's being artificially held up by, you know, by hormones and growth implants. So we go do that for 15 years and beef quality declines. The hormones we're using make it, you know, Tough and unpalatable, which leads to the quality perception problem that we had coming into the late seventies, which is why we need the checkoff, right? Yep, that was the lie that we got sold on the, you know, we got sold on the checkoff. Well, we need this to, you know, increase quality, increase competition, blah 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 blah. Well, and you know we we don't have to talk about what's happened since the checkoff, but it just seems like, you know. Scale, you know, challenges of managing at scale, challenges of growing food at scale, challenges of growing anything at scale, you know, maybe it, it, maybe scale is the problem. Maybe the scale is a
1: problem. Absolutely. Scale is absolutely no two ways about it. And, and, and you get, you get, the way you get, the way you're able to scale is to remove the human component from it. That's how you scale. Pretty simple.
0: And that gets back to, you know, the whole labor argument. Like, it, I'm having trouble squaring the labor, the labor and energy.
1: Let, let me give you the history of the McGregor family. Okay. See, see if there's any clues in there, okay? So my great-grandmother uh, wrote for the Corson County paper her life history uh, sometime in the 1960s, and then that was tied together by my aunt, and uh, and I myself have spent a lot of time just talking to, we, we had a big rift go through the middle of our family, and when I turned 18 years old, I had the opportunity to go and get to know one of my uncles, and, uh, you know, got all kinds of history, and my, you know, my dad, he had his version of things, and his older brother obviously had a very different version of things, as, as brothers will do, and uh, so I, so I, so my great grandmother left Pennsylvania, son of a civil war veteran, uh, ended up renting farms in her dad, rented farms in Iowa. They ended up with a place in central South Dakota at the time that the cattle drives were still coming through.
0: So 1850s, 1860s? Yep. 70s, 80s somewhere, okay.
1: Went north to the, to the North Dakota, South Dakota border across from uh, what is now Timber Lake, uh, went to Omaha visiting family, came back with a guy, That had a name McGregor that had no past, but he had, uh, I can, uh, through his tack and through pictures, this guy had Texas, he had Texas cow tradition traditions. And that was my great grandpa, William McGregor.
0: But but you don't know anything about him.
1: He was a murderous son of a gun. That's what we know about it. Uh, he would sell teams of horses to immigrants. And then once they got over the next major train feature, he'd go and get his horses back um he started a range war there was a real honest to god range war you know that they, they were shooting horses out underneath people um in that course county paper she admitted to him lynching indians uh he was he was he was this this son of a gun was a he was he was not uh he was he was he was not uh a, a nice guy by any means not somebody who so,
0: wanted to be on the bad side of
1: yep yeah. so she started out in Pennsylvania and then died in North Dakota. Her son, my grandfather, he started out in North Dakota and he died in Minnesota. No one in our family in that whole, in that whole history has lived in one state and ranched in one state that whole time. They went out south of Mandan on the South Dakota border. They went and built a big ranch, built a big, beautiful house, um, grew corn down there, which anybody, like, that's, that's, I, don't, I think they're still, that's still amazing um they built a house out of uh sequestered carbon and uh, replaced uh okay
0: it, i'm not letting that one go by how'd they build a house out of sequestered carbon
1: they built a sod house okay uh and then replaced that with what is effectively a mansion probably about a 3,500 square foot stick built house um and then everything just kind of went to shit in the it, right around world war one and uh, it was during the Great Depression that my grandfather and his brothers, they were driving cattle out of the Dust Bowl. They're going to go and graze along the Cannonball River when great-grandfather died. Some of the brothers said, finally, you know, I'm not going to get shot if I if I try and leave. They moved to upstate New York. My grandfather ranched uh, around that area <clears throat> until he had some drought. You know, different pressures were put on him. Um, then he moved to uh central Minnesota basically because land was really cheap. You could you could boy, if you could put a fence up, you know, it was really cheap land. He dropped everything, went to Minnesota, and uh then that's where my dad started ranching. I was I was actually born in Minnesota. Um and now I'm in southeast Indiana. Over that whole history there's not been a single McGregor that has lived and died in the same state. We've migrated with the cattle business. Now that's only five generations because we're all old men and we have kids. We we wait around till our 40s to have kids. So there's only four generations uh, in that family, so that's so that's how we're able to do that. Have, you know, not live in the same state. But if you look at that history, that's you know, there's a lot of opportunity. And when my great grandmother, when she went out to North Dakota, that was free labor, and you had to. That was a pretty ballsy move to go. You know, the this, this, the Sioux Indians were still. They were they were certainly not put down at that point. And uh, so you know, you think about that. That is a tremendous amount of opportunity. And then my grandfather leaves that area for another opportunity because Minnesota was, you know, it, it was one big swamp when he moved back to Minnesota. So, and, and I'm now, I'm in Indiana chasing opportunity, but I'm chasing opportunity where the old fences, you know, there's old fences where I'm building the fence. I know where the property line is because there was a fence there, um, you know, made with Cedar posts 50 years ago. Right. And so, but, so I'm still chasing opportunity. I just hit the other end of the bathtub and now I'm sloshing back this way. And that's, and, but my grandmother, she, you know, they, they shot their way out of their problems. My grandfather, he, I don't know if he his way out of his problems. And then my dad, he went and got a good job in town after he came out of the Navy. And that's how he was able to finance his ranching operation.
0: Oh, your dad was a Navy man. Now you
1: die. Yeah, he was, and he was, he was a boiler operator too.
0: Oh, he's a boiler tech. Yeah. That, that's the other side of the, uh, of the rating that I was in. I started off yep. as a machinist yep. mate, which, just after I, just after I joined, or I guess just before I joined, they combined uh, boiler technicians with machinist mates.
1: And I think I don't know how many enterprise I know it was it's not the World War II enterprise, but I think that he put an enterprise in service too
0: Probably the World War II one. The, the one oh, I definitely. was on didn't didn't come in until I think 60 I shouldn't know this, like 61 or 62.
1: Yeah, he came he, out. He was old when I was there. He came out in 62. That's when he left the Navy. And I think one of the last things he did is put the, I think, I think he put the enterprise in service.
0: That would be so, pretty, that could be, that might be kind of interesting if, uh, if your dad was a plank owner on one of the boats I was on. Yeah. So,
1: um, but he, yeah, that was, and, and he came out as a boiler operator and went to work for uh, the reason that Minnesota made sense. He went to work for a paper mill and uh, it was a good job uh you know union it was a good union job that he didn't you know he could work shift work and uh and finance all kinds of finance and ranching, and that's how i you know that that's the place that i was born so um and then and then and then the and then the paper plant went to hell unions left and then we ended up bouncing around the country predominantly i think you know until my dad got another good job um, but we bounced all over building ethanol plants and cow-kill plants and things like that and trading horses. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the, and he he blamed it on what he referred to as Reaganomics, but basically what, was, what it was, was globalism is what chased that around the countryside.
0: That's, you know, you can't really talk about Reaganomics in a lot of circles because Saint Ronnie is still held in very high regard in a lot of red states, and I get that. But I think I'm I think I'm with you on the bus that this whole globalization Reaganomics train um, is a wreck and has been a wreck. It's just taken us you know thirty years to see it and see how bad it's going to be. I mean, foreign over half our food supply is owned by foreign interests. I, I mean, food security is national security. How the, how did we forget that?
1: You, know, you almost, you almost, had to get, you almost caused some editing there. <laughs> the,
0: I do the editing. So I, I get to choose how much I want to do. So the uh, yeah.
1: So, but, but, you know, he, he was the, he was, he was, he was kind of the, the, he, he dealt the death knell to globalism when he, you know, when, when, you know, we came out of Vietnam. And we said, "Hey, guess what? These hippies don't want to. They don't want to go and fight all that bad." You know, they, this is this is not this is not World War II and Korea generation. You know, these guys want a different way. They come out and he says, "All right, we can outspend the commies." You know, we we ain't gonna we ain't gonna go and and fight it out in the jungle with them. But we can outspend them. So he sinks Russia, uh, makes Russia unsustainable, and then his predecessor. Uh, not his president, the, the guy that came after him, George H.W. Bush, he was the last globalist. He's a guy that said, What do you mean you want to go and attack Kuwait? Let's, you know, let's go and handle business. Bill Clinton came in and said, Hey, we're going to fix all these domestic problems that we have right here. You know, like, like this is domestic problems. George, and then George W. came in, he's going to fix domestic problems. Obama's going to fix domestic problems. Everybody wants to fix domestic problems to the point where, uh, both Trump and Biden they said, Hey, we are not that worried about what's going on over the horizon we're going to fix all these domestic problems and that is the end of globalism that is which the whole cattle industry the whole ag industry everybody's like we got to feed the world we got to feed the world here's a question when it came time to make sure that we had enough oil to go and feed the world did you go inside did you walk down to your local friendly strip mall and say hey and you know and there's there's four four people with hangovers there one in the air force one in the navy one in the marine corps one in the army (laughs) did you go and visit with those guys after 9 11. No, you did not. but you said, oh, I want to feed the world. guess what part of feeding the world is is keeping the shipping lanes open and keeping everybody keeping everybody with enough diesel fuel to drive around and go and, and go and eat our food. But on an individual local level, even in agricultural communities so like there's some guys like, oh, I did and like yeah, absolutely. Now look around you. how many of your neighbors did? My dad went to the Korean War and he was my dad was a second son. And his brother, Jim, did not go to the Korean War and married the prettiest girl in the county. And when he was almost 80 years old, I was at a wedding with my Uncle Jim, where this Korean War vet accused him of being a draft dodger and marrying the only pretty girl in in the county. Because everybody in that county up and left for the Korean War. Everybody. And Uncle Jim still got shit about it 50 years later.
0: I I was sitting here thinking about how many guys I know around here that are veterans. And there's a few, just a few. And most of them are older than me.
1: And you're in Kansas.
0: Yeah. Surprisingly, there's, there's a large amount of Navy guys, old Navy vets around. Like I probably I'd say half the vets I know are, are Navy guys. Why says, I don't know. Fifteen hundred miles away says, from the ocean. Let's all sign up for the Navy. That, that
1: says something bad about your community, I think, as far as I'm concerned. But the uh
0: let I'll let that one go.
1: The uh but the well no after nine eleven they said, Hey, go buy a new Chevy at zero percent interest. Go, go shopping, go shopping. And then it was about two thousand and five, June thirtieth, two thousand and five. George W. Bush went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and he said, Hey, we really need help. This is this is an honorable profession to be in the military and we need help. And, uh, and I've said this before, anybody who was in the military in 2007, 2008, you know, how shorthanded were you? Everyone was shorthanded.
0: So, you know, I, I got I balanced, man. I bounced in 06 because the corporate culture was going downhill in a hurry.
1: Yep. And, uh, but the, you know, most people, they said, they, what the message they heard was, hey, go, go, go shopping. Let's save this. Don't let this ruin our economy. You know, instead of, so... <clears throat> That's that's fine. I'm not. This is not one of the places where I'm trying to make somebody feel guilty about not going. I'm trying to trying to use that as an illustration of when people say we've got to feed the world.
0: Well, well, okay. look, what is it? Over 70 percent of, of young people between 18 and 25 are medically disqualified from joining the military. Like right up front. It's 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 just staggering that seventy to eighty percent are ineligible just right just walking in the freaking door.
1: And how did and you know, how did Doctor Fred Provenza how did he explain that with epigenetics? He's using it used with cattle. I just listened to the Fred Provenza episode.
0: Okay, uh, it was on, it was several weeks ago for me. <laughs> okay,
1: on on ranching on ranching reboot with Brian Alexander. Uh, with the red and rancher i listened to dr fred Prevenza explain how what you eat you become what you eat basically yeah. and the day after i listened to it there was a new york times article came out and said that hey there are people that, not a matter of getting them to sign up they just can't pass a physical to get in the military which if you've ever been in the military sat in a chow hall in iraq i want you to know you don't need to be in very good condition to be in the military
0: i mean a mile and a half sounds like a lot of running when you haven't run but trust me after doing it every day for two to three months in boot camp, that mile and a half is cake. Yeah. So you know, 50 push ups Don't worry about it. Don't sweat that. I mean, unless you want to go be a Marine, then you got to do some pull-ups and stuff. But if you're really worried about the physical, just go to the air force. Yeah. The only,
1: or the army has got a pretty, it's you You can get in the army and, 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 and be okay yeah it's not too difficult so that's uh yeah we are what we eat uh and now we're feeding everybody a bunch of garbage and and, and, and oh, especially we gotta
0: feed the world
1: yeah we gotta feed the world and especially we're feeding we're feeding poor kids garbage because rich kids are buying they're buying grass-fed steaks from me yeah you know that that so but the poor kids they get the hot dogs and, and that kind of stuff and guess who guess who goes in the military it's the poor kids more more, more often more but okay. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, we got a hell of, we got a hell of a mess to unravel
0: here. So did you just say that regenerative agriculture is racist because only, only rich kids can afford to eat it?
1: Um, you know what? We have some real problems in regenerative agriculture. Yeah, we really do. Um, and I, and you know, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm part of regenerative agriculture. I have a different bent that I might want to be on.
0: Let's let's talk about that. I mean, I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna float this with you first. You this is this is this is this is it right here. Vegan warrior. So, I don't think that I'm a. Re, I think that we regenerate the land. And uh, and Liz, uh, she is most definitely the regenerative agriculture one of a handful of regenerative agriculture people in this area, and she's been at it for since way before it was cool. And uh, but I. And, and, and she has like water lines buried throughout, you know, she puts up two stock tanks with every one of her, every one of her pastures and all this, you know, they just she has infrastructure infrastructure. I'm different. I think that I am part of the industrialized agriculture. Okay. If it costs money, I don't want to do it. So my cows, the, the pastures that I set up and I take care of, my cows can walk the water. They have legs. I don't need to go and dig a trench to go and make this, now, does this, this, this place that we're on, does it look absolutely fantastic? And does it, is its carrying capacity unbelievable? Absolutely. But the reason I bring up deindustrialized agriculture and how how I think that we should do business is regenerative agriculture is not that accessible. If you go and listen to everybody in the, that, you know, but let's say, you listen to Brian Alexander and you say, I'm going to go. I'm going to get into regenerative agriculture. Look at so so. I don't know if let's go, let's go. to that
0: guy. He's full. Of let's crap. go
1: check out Red Hills Rancher. He's going to have this really fantastic little stock tank that's got on a little trailer, and then he has you know this uh, big chunk of water line and a solar pump and all these things to really go and get that place of his, really do it, just do it upright, okay. And all these, and then you know all the all the social media uh, folks that I follow, you know, uh, Trevor and Hobbs and uh, you know, they all have these really nifty, uh, solutions to all these problems, you know, and, and a lot of these solutions that they have are thousands of dollars for these solutions. So it's not accessible. Where in reality, you can go ranching. Now, I had, I had some, I was raised by some awfully good men that that were, were good and cheap. but I'm going ranching with a three quarter ton pickup and, and, and a couple of small engines. You know that are on on water pumps you know like I can you know I don't know how long it takes for me to wear out a generator and burn a cup full of gasoline every time I want to go and water my cows. But I think that overall when you you know you're and everybody that's listening, Brian has this really nifty solar pump and this nifty little water tank trailer, it's really fantastic. And I don't know what the break even point is for my little cup of gasoline in my generator and my sump pump is you know, over the course of the life of your thing. But that's what I'm saying. You don't need a million dollars to go ranching. You need some cows. You need some fence. Some hay is really nice.
0: I, then, I'd, I'd argue the hay.
1: Oh, well, there's some. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd argue against hay. But you know what? It sure does feel good having 250 tons of hay in a pile right now. Yeah. That makes me fuzzy all over. I don't know. And that's that's. Uh, but in deindustrialized agriculture, you know, I can go and buy hay for a lot cheaper than I can put it up. I think that here in the here in the suburbs, I can buy hay for cheaper than I can grow forage.
0: And then, how, it, that just blows my mind. That just absolutely boggles my mind. Is how somebody can grow hay and bale it cheaper than I can grow grass. I, I that makes no sense to me
1: it's a fa- i think it's a fallacy of sunken costs and they they say well if we want to go farming we got to go and buy a baler. you know we got to go buy a tractor. we got to buy a baler. we got to buy a haybine we're going to have all this stuff and then they have it they have a job in town their wife has a job in town everybody has a job in town and then they start doing they start getting their math creative enough where they think that they're actually making money and in reality they're just taking they're just uh, depreciating vehicles. That's or, or depreciating machinery. But the deindustrialized agriculture—it's not just a matter of getting in it. You know, there's 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 always a way to. Do, if you don't have the money, there's always a way to go and do something. There's always a way to figure
0: it out. If, raise the long pasture what, with some sheep.
1: Yep. What I so one of the things I'm like one of my dreams is to um, get set up in a way. And I think this would really go well with the prepper and urban homesteader type crowd that can't, you know, can't, uh, don't have room for for cattle. I would love to have a group buy a critter from me and, uh, you know, knock it in the head, hang it from front end loader and have them take it apart. You know, that would be on the farm. Yeah, maybe on the you know I I don't know I don't know how badly I want to have people coming and going and all that kind of stuff, but you know I bet you could get that because that's how McGregors have fed themselves since you know we didn't eat our own cattle because our cattle they had value and they went to town and they got sold, but you could go to town and you could find something you could go to find something with a crooked front leg, and uh, and eat him, you know so uh, and that's that's a pretty dang cheap eating if you know if you wanted to. You know, the price of, of grass fed steaks, if you want grass fed meat, um, it's pretty stinking hard to buy any a pound of grass fed anything for under 10 bucks a pound uh, anywhere, you know, except if you went out, you know, you're not of the Alexander place, or you went out to the McGregor place, there's probably somebody that has a that has a, you know, that that needs to go. Uh, I'm sitting in my freezer room, what we call the second chance ranch. Uh, okay. You know, because if you give us a dirty look. Or give one of the girls around here a dirty look this is this is where you go. but uh, you know there's 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 times in the year where we don't have the processing dates and we're hanging on the cattle um, where we'd love to we'd love to sell you a quarter of beef if you came and cut it up yourself. you know so
0: but we can't that do that
1: <laughs> that makes it that makes it that that makes it accessible. i don't I don't I don't know. I think if I sell I think if I sell a credit to five people. And, uh, and they show up and, uh, I, you know, and I provide the, I provide the steel tables and I mean, I'm a long ways from doing it. Um, but I, I absolutely think that'd be, that'd be a go. And I think that, you know, and then if you had a butcher that knew what they were doing, that was talking, that was walking them through it, you know, and, and teach them, you know, like some French butcher really teaching them how to do it. I think people would really be into it. You know, I've watched a lot of meat cutting videos, and you know, like, hey, you can go to Costco and you can buy this sh- this shoulder clod, and this is how you break it down. You know, they have real like I, I think that's really neat. So, not so neat that I want to do it for a living, but you know, I sure like watching people talk about it. So,
0: for sure. So, um, you pick on vegans an awful lot. I do any reason just easy targets
1: yeah so i went uh my yeah easy they they are becoming easier targets um i've actually as of late i've been picking on industrialized agriculture a lot more than vegans because we have to i'm kind of i'm just kind of setting the conditions for my argument but i when i was a corporal in the army I, they said, you got to have an email address and you're going to, and I had to start writing emails. You know, I had to start populating different things and writing emails and my platoon sergeant, uh, Jeff Winstead said, Hey, I'm going to swear. So everybody hide your ears or whatever. I'm going to say it." Jeff Winstead said, Hey, McGregor, you write like an asshole. You need to go to college. <laughs> so, uh, so I went to college, uh, cause Jeff Winstead was one of the people you listen to. And, uh, So I signed up for a philosophy class. I'd studied a lot of religion and go to this philosophy class. And you get about two weeks into it and you start talking about uh, sentient beings and uh, and uh, the the, the singer talking about animals having as many rights as human beings. And all of these arguments come up and there's no farm kids sitting there in a philosophy class. So I was kind of me against the world. And i was at you know i was i was stationed in fort lewis so you know a very very liberal population outside of fort lewis oh,
0: for and uh, where, where's fort lewis i don't know washington okay
1: come washington so uh, i'm in this community college arguing like hey that's not really how it is you know that's not like you know this animal feels this this animal feels this animal feels and you know <laughs>
0: you're like I would, use, no. I would use
1: horses i would use horses because i grew up eating horse my, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm from, I'm from Plains people and uh, my dad liked to eat horse and we had horse in the freezer. All oh, that's just, that's just how it was. So they're like, I can't believe that you would eat a horse. And when you say, listen, that horse is not a puppy dog. Okay. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care if you eat horse, but all through Europe, they're eating horse. And if you think that having a horse in your backyard, in your one acre backyard, and hucking him half a bale of hay every day, that is the worst torture you could possibly give a horse because that horse is designed to move 30 to 50 miles a day to go and find water and new ground with friends. So if, so if you own a horse, you need to be on that damn thing. A good portion of the day and keep its mind working because just up until very recently, that animal has been designed to work. And that has been his, his job throughout history is to do some work for us. So when you tell people like, no, you know thunder in the backyard he's in a way worse situation and he's not looking forward to his cousin's wedding he doesn't have that part of his brain where he can see the future so he's just miserable every day yeah. so the best thing you could do for old thunder is go and carve him up and that and that boy that that boggles people's minds so and i so i've continued to study philosophy i still um i i'm going to be in college for the rest of my life um and I, I I currently go to Penn State, Pennsylvania State University and uh on a part-time basis. And I study narrative technology, which is an offshoot of philosophy at the ball at the Bolisario School of Journalism. But anyway,
0: narrative so technology.
1: Yep, yeah, which I'll explain to you in a second. But it in philosophical circles, there was this uh, there, was, there was a guy named Springer in the 1970s who founded the animal liberation movement, and uh, by writing a book. And basically, this is his an ar- argument: animals can think and feel, and therefore we should not eat them. Okay. So, in reality, that ph- that philosophically that doesn't hold up very well because the premise doesn't match. Animals can think and feel. Okay. Well, then we need to pay very a lot of attention to how they think and feel. You know, what they feel, we need to pay a lot of attention to that. So as part of the process, and he will admit this today, as part of the process of taking care of livestock, is you know, a cow on the Alexander place, when she is past her productive point, and let's say she breaks a leg or gets a boo-boo or some kind of thing like that, the thing the best thing to do for her is not to just keep her alive. The best thing to do is to have turn her into money so then Brian Alexander could go and make other animals happy. Yes. Okay. So that's that's the point. And without that cow turning into money, at some point Brian Alexander will not be able to continue to make happy steers. So it's a process to make animals happy. And uh, so the, the narrative technology, I'll I'll get to that in a that it's kind of outside of this. But the <clears throat> but but I'll get to it. The so that's that's where the argument came from. That's my background in it is through philosophy. And since I have been on social media um i i am the vegan warrior uh because i you know the arguments are pretty simple to take apart um which basically comes down to if you really care about animals make animals happy and if you think that making animals happy is treating everything like a puppy dog you're absolutely mistaken and if you don't believe me go look at the state of most puppy dogs in the world there's a reason that people there's a reason that we have the humane society. There's a reason that we have stray dogs running all over the countryside. All he said, human beings are not good at doing things without a profit. motive. We're not good at it. So, uh, yeah, well, would you so yesterday, uh, me and another guy, we were, we were going to debate a vegan online on we were going to go to TikTok Live. And uh, the big question is, like, why would you eat a pig when you would not eat a dog? Okay, well, they came from the same place. They've lived in the house with human beings up until 150 years ago. They lived right in the house. pigs got everybody, and they were companion animals. And they and in some cultures, the dog, he was there to be eaten, just like the hog in you know our our European tradition, just like the hog. Everybody's there to get eaten someday, and yeah. and they're easy to get along with up until that point, and they make your life better up until that point. Um, and that so that's. You know that's the simple, simple part of it. The other problem that I have with veganism is it is it is it is. We're talking about now. I'm getting into narrative technology, so I'll explain what narrative technology is. Narrative technology uh, is a pretty new term. Um, I think that I've had a hand in uh, in in defining it. Uh, but when you tell a story, a story works a certain way. It's called the story circle. And I should have this up in front of me, but, you know, a boy meets girl or, you know, there's a guy and he's in his kingdom He's and then and then he's called to an adventure and he goes on this adventure and then he has some setbacks and this kind of thing. And then he comes back from this adventure and he wins the girl because he is now a knight that's been, you know, and he goes and he slays a bad guy that was causing bad problems when he was just some normal surf, you know, and now he's back and he's a tough guy and he gets a girl and they live happily ever after. Our brains work that way we want that story to work that way we're, we are set up that way
0: we want that four-act story with conflict and resolution and a happy ending
1: yep. so that once upon so let's call it once upon a time once upon okay. a time actually so when we're calling this technology it's a it's a it's a it's a thing that gets a that gets a response so when we say once upon a time we can open the book of genesis with once upon a time okay just like so religion all religions have a narrative aspect to and they are a technology by which we order ourselves okay okay now there's a lot of there's there's you can read about this forever and ever and ever and never read all of it but that veganism is following that same narrative path but every single step of the way they have to they have they, they're logically wrong there's something, there's something they have to completely forget about for their narrative to continue down the path. And it's pretty easy to disrupt that. My problem, my problem with the philosophy of veganism is it is based on lies. It's you have to have a lie. You got to take that 10% of truth and turn it into a lie. And when you do that in the name of religion, so that pisses me off online, I'll yell at you. But when you turn that into a religion and you try and turn that into action, then that's why people like me shoot people like them. And I like,
0: and it, they can't reach some of the conclusions that they have unless they ignore part of the data set or just completely ignore some facts. I, the thing that bothers me most about vegans. OK, so let's do a black and white extreme example. We all convert to veganism. Regardless of what lifestyle changes that's that's going to make to you and i as as beef guys and cattlemen, so everybody goes to eat veganism so how are we going to everybody goes to eat vegan food? how are we going to grow that? you know how are we going to grow all that all that corn? how are we going to grow all that soy? Where are we going to grow all that soy? Where are we going to get the chemicals to grow all that soy what's that going to leave the land looking like okay so something else that social media is allowed, is, is getting out there is some of the effects that farmers have on the land. And hopefully the other four people that are listening are about ready to click us off, but there was, there was one, I saw it was back in the middle of June and it was a guy running a swather. Okay. This, this is the kind of the context. And so then a series of fi- pictures flashed up about the kinds of rocks that he'd find in the field but they weren't rocks. They're were pictures of different wildlife. Like it was a turtle and he called one a slow rock. Uh, there was, you know, a baby fawn. There was a skunk they called a stinky rock. There was an armadillo and you know, there badgers. There's all these other small, you know, mammals. And there was even a deer in there. And yep. I thought, and I, the whole context was, is like he was kind of joking that this is the stuff that he runs over and goes through the swather when he's when he's making hay bales yeah and i'm thinking man that's a sick fucking thing to make a joke out of yeah like you're gonna sit there and tell me you're environmentally responsible when you watch these animals go through your machine and then you're gonna post about it on on social media that's cool That's cool. That really helps our argument. That really helps us look like we're good people. Like we're doing good things for the environment. Like, you know, care for all life. Respect all life. If I see a freaking six inch long snake sunning himself on the road in the morning, I slow down and I go drive in the ditch. Yeah. I mean, I break for turtles. If I'm going down a i'm going down the county road and there's a turtle in the middle of the road i will put on my hazard flashers and pull over and try to get that turtle to the side of the road that it wanted to be on yep but we're going to go out and we're not going to give a crap when we're cutting our wheat and our corn about the wildlife we run over we don't think about how many insects we're going to kill when we load up with that insecticide and go spray our cornfield oh well it's just the grasshoppers got to kill the grasshoppers. Grasshoppers eat the corn. Well, what eats grasshoppers? Birds. Well, what eats birds? You know, there, there's food chain. There's, I think there's food chain collapses that have happened that we haven't noticed that we just simply haven't noticed that we're just ignorant to because we're, we're stupid humans.
1: Yep. So what you're, what you're saying is that swather is a, is a, is death and destruction going up and down the countryside, just like a combine and just like any other, Apparatus, you know, plow, disc, whatever, and that. So that's a vegan argument. But so here's here's how vegans argue against that. Yeah. Well, you do the same. So yes, you kill all kinds of mice and bulls and all kinds of stuff by growing the you know the lentils that I want to eat. Okay. Well, guess what? You do the same thing when you feed cows. Okay. Because your your swather is doing the same thing. So that's the argument. But so so around this place, and and
0: then they start both. Then they start pulling out those fake numbers. Well, animal agriculture takes. This much more land than plant yeah. agriculture, or we can grow this much protein on this much area with plant agriculture, and animal agriculture is so much less efficient. Like, those are all bullshit numbers that are all made up.
1: Okay. For the ranchers listening, I'm gonna say the most important thing about this whole deal is we have to figure out a way to address that problem of killing people with our disc vines, hay vines, swathers, whatever. Okay. So We have to figure out how are we going to do that, okay? On this place, my mother-in-law, she gets a couple of fawns every year, okay? I don't know what a dollar, I don't know what a pound of venison costs on this place with all the trail cameras, the Polaris buggies, the, the cover crops, they are deer hunting crazy and they have spent more stinking money on hunting deer and supplementing them than you can possibly imagine. And then in the first cutting of hay, we go out and we just they so and they it run over all. the So what we're trying get to get more out fawns
0: right now, with the freaking with the freaking mower conditioner or the haybine than yeah. the hunters would take from that area.
1: So we're trying to figure out right now, and I'm doing the math. Well, I asked, I asked my, I asked my mother and father in law. I said, "What do you think every fawn is worth on this place?" And they're like, "Oh, I don't know." I'm like, "How much money do you think you have tied up in hunting crap?" And they, and they, I seriously have, they have tens and tens of thousands of dollars in stuff that is designed for them to go and get uh, turkeys and rabbits and deer. To the point where you are not allowed to do anything. You aren't even allowed to walk across this place sometimes during hunting season. I mean, they, they care very deeply about that. So when I said, what do you think every fawn is worth? You know, let's say we kill five a year until the end of time, you know, and then we have interest involved and so on and so forth by my math every single fawn is worth at least ten thousand dollars just just you know looking at it from the fifty thousand foot view so then how do we get so that first cutting of hay let's get rid of that first cutting of hay let's run the cows out on it okay and it which which usually the first cutting of hay in this country is not worth a damn because it gets all stemmy and seeded out uh before it's dry enough to go and cut and then half the time you're spraying all kinds of uh sauce on it to get it to dry or you know to cure so the the hay is not worth a shit for anything and that's why i can buy it for next to nothing um and then they kill so why can't we go and knock that first cutting down with cattle and then get second and third cutting out of it that takes pressure off of our pastures you know cows they they might be hard on turkey eggs but they're not near as hard as uh you know (laughs) as, as hay equipment so uh you know, and they're certainly, they certainly they, they i think that they're complementary to rabbits, um, and and rabbit hunting around here—that's like when rabbit hunting's going on, that is the only thing that matters. And so, you know, that's a math that as ranchers we got to figure out: Are we doing the right kind of math? And every and every single one of us—I don't every, I, I don't know any ranchers where hunting is not a big component in their ranch, whether it be for family time, whether they have hunters out there hunting, they're, you know, for, for money, um, hunting is a big component of it. And we need to figure out, we, we, we need to have an answer when a vegan comes and says, well, you know, haybines kill more fawns than anybody. In the world. This guy named Chip McGregor told me, you know, you better have a damn answer. Otherwise, you're just part of the problem. But running around saying, hey, vegans are dumb. Guess what? There's as many vegans as there are farmers now.
0: And I think I, there's way more of them.
1: Uh, we have it's approximately, this, approximately the same number. But I think there are more. Um, I think there's. I think there's more because the farmers are declining and vegans. I don't know that their numbers are going to continue to increase because regenerative agriculture, um, small local food, the local food and foodie movement has certainly done some damage to their narrative.
0: I feel like there's there's a lot of vegans and vegetarians that have crossed back over that line once they've learned about regenerative agriculture. Yes. And you know, like we, like we talked about earlier, you know, there's a lot of them that, that go vegan because they, you know, animal welfare issue. They just, you know, they don't think that it's humane to kill another animal or they just think it's wrong to eat the flesh of another animal. Okay, fine. You can have that view. You can have that view, but let's go ahead and let's take that step back and let's look at how the vegan diet that you want to eat is made. And let's look at the, let's look at the environmental cost of that. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that all vegan diets have horrible environmental consequences. I'm sure there are some that don't, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's somewhere that you can live on fruits, nuts, and berries and and wild grown vegetables. I haven't seen it yet.
1: They don't have vegans where you can do that. They don't have vegans. We we, we have them in, in America in cities with concrete.
0: Yeah, I, there there's no developing civilization, or no civilization developed on a vegan or vegetarian diet. Period. Like there has there is not a successful civilization in history that has had a vegetarian or a vegan diet period. The, the,
1: the Indians, the Janus would, would disagree with that. Uh, in, 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 uh, in India, the Janus would probably disagree with it. It's not vegan, but it's, and, would be, who are they? Well, they're, they're, they're one of the, they're one of the uh, probably religious foundations of, of, of Western religion. And certainly to your point, there, 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 are some, there are some places, if you have that argument, some vegans would come and say, well, what about the Janus? What about there's a whole lot of Indians? You know, there's a whole sect of India that doesn't eat meat. Uh, now, they're not vegan. It,
0: it tell me what they've accomplished as a civilization. Like, what great works have they built? What great exploration have they undertaken? Have they done anything notable as a civilization or are they just simply existing? I mean, they didn't develop through the centuries. They didn't come from the last ice age as vegans. Like they were vegetarians. There was a point where they decided to quit eating meat after we've developed its civilization and writing and tools and intelligence. There's a point where people are just like, hey, you know what? This delicious red crap that we've been eating for the last, I don't know, 10,000 years that's everywhere around us, um, I'm just going to stop eating that now. Yeah, that makes sense. I I
1: think so. I think that I think that a better. Because the, the 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 vegetarian from India is going to have a better next century than the average American will. So the uh, so the, the your argument may fall on some hard times uh, here soon. Here is the argument that I think is better that is better suited for us. Is it has taken thousands of years for them to get to that point, and the state of animal welfare in India is absolutely flipping atrocious okay cows walking down the road cows left to starve you know as a they remove the profit motive from animal husbandry so they still milk cows there but when you're done with your cow you just turn it out because you, or or you get someone to smuggle it across to pakistan uh so where it's legal to eat it uh but the cattle you know living in garbage all this kind of stuff um in india that that model, the outcomes that India has for livestock have been absolutely atrocious, horrifying. That's what that's what veganism gets you because because you know one of the corriente cows on the Alexander place, if she goes and you know she gets something wrong with her that causes her to not have a calf, and Brian can't go and take her to town and turn her into something, she's gonna you know the Red Hills of Kansas is not a fantastic place to go and die of malnutrition. So, you know, they're, they're, the, so the profit motive needs to be there. And India is a prime example of of why a profit motive needs to be there. I think that's probably a better argument for the cattlemen. But at the same time, you know, that comes down to let's go find a dead pile at a feedlot. Yeah. You know, let's, let's go get that in the background behind us when we're talking about all the benefits of eating meat. You know, no sure. no one wants to do that.
0: And we've got an image problem of feedlots. Like, not just an image problem. Feedlots are a problem. I mean, they're a problem from an animal welfare, and animal husbandry point of view. Environmental point of view. An, an environmental <laughs> point of view. I mean, they're, they're, they're bad. Yep. But for as much talking about the subject as I've done, I don't see a way to not have them. At scale. I mean, again, we're back to a scale problem. Like trying to manage at scale, trying to feed people at scale. There's a part of me that, that wants to just say we should stop worrying about scale. Stop worrying about trying to feed the world. Don't worry about feeding the world. Feed yourself, feed your neighbor, feed the community down the road. And let's, tar- let's do that. Let's feed ourselves and let's feed our communities, and not worry about feeding the world. Because in that, in the whole feeding the world mentality, that we've seen the shift to, I mean, you're uh, you're a few years younger than I am. I kind of get that sense. Like, like oh, yeah. forty-four. Me too. Huh. Okay, so we're I guess clean we're clean
1: right? clean living.
0: Yeah. So we've seen the same things. I mean, we 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 were kids during Reagan you know, Reagan area, and we've watched all this consolidation. We've watched all our manufacturing get moved overseas. We've watched, you know, these meat packers consolidate, build bigger and bigger plants, bigger and bigger feedlots. We've watched all the oil companies. We've watched the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, we've watched all these mergers and these, you know, these companies where we used to have some choice in tractors you used to have, you know, you used to be able to get an Alice, a Massey, A You used to be able to get every color. Now you're lucky if your town has two different colors of tractors in it. Yep. You know, so we've seen all this consolidation. We've seen a lot of, we've seen another rural exodus back to the urban areas. We went through this really weird period where you had to have a college degree. If you don't have a college degree, you'll never get a job. Nobody will ever hire you. And the only way to get ahead in life is to go to college which now we don't have a generation of tradesmen. We have a half a generation of people that are overeducated with a degree they can't pay for in a job field. That's overstaffed. Like we've been, we've just been, we've been listening to these lies and now they're kind of all being laid bare. You know, the, the veganism, the veganism argument, you're doing a great job of debunking it. We can talk about industrialized ag and, Yeah, we got this way because efficiencies of scale. Efficiencies of scale. But the thing that efficiencies of scale ignore. Is the welfare of the individual. Whether we're talking about the welfare of the individual person or the individual animal. Yep. Those are being ignored in the bigger society. And we're people, we can generally kind of take care of ourselves, but animals can't do that. We have to be there to take care of them. And we, we build these, you know, we, we build these, you know, 10,000 head chicken barns, 6,000 head hog barns, 75,000 head feedlots. Like, you know, that a 5,000 head hog facility produces the same waste as 15,000 people per day. No, we'll just manage that in the lagoon. But if it's municipal waste coming out of people's houses, oh God, we gotta have all kinds of rules for that. There's there's a point where agriculture where we have to be good neighbors. There's a point where we have to square the feeding the world with taking care of our community. And I'm not sure how all that fits together.
1: Well, I think that I think the answer is is. You know, I don't know of any ag economists that have stepped up to the forefront and kind of looked at these economies of scale and looked at a lot of these problems. If anyone's listening to this and they're an economist or they know an economist that knows anything about agriculture, um, get them in touch with Brian because that's one of the components that we're missing is we can't explain a lot of this stuff. We can't because we're, I'm not an economist. I'm a, I'm a writer is probably my, my, my major education. And uh, you know Brian's a sailor, so he just you know drinks beer, drinks beer, and carouses and punches his friends. So the you know the that's what we that's what we need is the economic component of someone to take this is to lay this apart, so lay this out so we can go and sift through the problems. For instance, the wall the econ, the economics of Walmart. Okay, Walmart's fantastic. It's a wonder of the world. You can go there and you can buy protein for a dollar a pound. You can buy eggs for ten cents a piece. It's a wonder of the world. It is a wonder of the world because we are subsidizing the Walton family by giving all of their employees welfare. Yep. Okay. Plain and simple. You want Walmart to have junk on the shelves when you go in there? It's because of the people that you complain about on welfare. Okay. Pretty simple. We're, we we give them a welfare check, therefore they can afford to work at Walmart, um, and Walmart can make, and then they can go and take control of things, and they can get ten cent eggs, and they can, you know, do all that I- kind of stuff.
0: Just so we don't get sued, it's not just Walmart like dollar general family dollar like the, the yeah, model, Walmart the model Walmart, replicates
1: Walmart come sue me I need the, I'm trying to sell beef here you know i'd, I'd love to I'd love to I'd get a couple of news stories going to Walmart trying to sell <laughs> money you guys, you guys you guys ought to you guys ought to see how I can write a paper so yeah, come sue me you bunch of hillbillies but anyway the uh uh that's you know that's across. You get to a certain scale in agriculture, and that's also the case because we're propping we're propping them up with our government tax dollars. It and that's now we I am not saying we need to go and cut that off tomorrow. You know, chip becomes dictator and says, Hey, let's cut off government tax dollars, and it doesn't and a tractor doesn't make it out in the field next spring because that would cause a lot of big problems. But we need to be able to make noise and get the things changed in the direction that they need to change. Because eventually, Bill Gates is going to show up with his driverless tractors and run those guys out of business. Everybody's going to change. There's one thing I guarantee you is going to happen. Chip McGregor, you have the Chip McGregor guarantee. Shit's going to change. Oh, yeah. And it's going to change for you. And if you think that everything is going to stay the same in your operation, whether you're a big-time farmer and you're running
0: you know, a
1: bazillion dollars worth of equipment, shit's going to change.
0: I'll, I'll be Probably fine. I'll be fine, Chip. I've been farming this way for 50 years. This yep. is how dad did it. This is how grandpa did it. This is how we've always done it. It'll be fine. This'll all work. Everything's fine. Yep. And great it.
1: grandpa and, and great grandpa built a big beautiful house out on the prairie and you're living in a trailer house. Yep. So yeah, I don't think that things are going that way. And here's the other thing. And this is this is why I'd like to get an economist involved. Is eventually when someone's making money. And they get to a level of efficiency. I know this much. I know this much about it, economics. They get to a level of efficiency where they can't improve efficiency anymore. So they just stop delivering as much stuff. Okay. So right now, go to Walmart, see what's on the shelves. They're still making as much profit. Okay. But, but, but can you, you know, I, I, I looked all over hell for a bone-in sirloin, a choice bone-in sirloin steak. But I wanted to compare, I want to do a side by side comparison with one of my snakes, and I could not find one of the damn things. In three towns, I had to go to my local butcher and go and, and which you know I should have just started there anyway. But <laughs> I, I wanted a straw man. I wanted one of their select, you know, I wanted one of their their critters that was, should have been should have been uh, USDA select, and they're calling it choice. But no, I had to go and actually get a choice ribeye to compare with, which is unfortunate. But you know, I think we will stand up all right. So that's that's. So now they just stop. Now we're at the now we're at the stop delivering checkpoint of the economic cycle.
0: Well, and that that almost wants to open up a whole different conversation into transportation and logistics and and supply chains. And
1: well, I yeah, that, that, it, it's
0: hard to I, talk I, about supply I can chains. I do all my
1: logistics. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: It's hard to talk about supply chains and logistics right now because everything—it seems like everything is just breaking down. Like all, all and, the supply chains are breaking.
1: And I know that this—I don't—I don't think that this is visible to anybody. I'm sitting in my freezer room. I have a bunch of 20 cubic foot freezers. I have a stand-up uh, glass door freezer behind me that will, after a good service a day, it'll be a display. I can do every bit of logistics on this place from womb to plate. I can do that with my three-quarter ton pickup myself. Well, and, and chances are really good that my wife can do better than I can. But the logistically, now we're buying hay. Uh, and and we are gonna try and see how far we can get on corn stocks this winter and see how little hay we can get by with. Um but we can do everything on this place with a three-quarter ton pickup. And the reason being I've had a CDL my whole life but since I was literally since I was 19 years old I've had a CDL. I came out of the military and my, and I didn't, my hazmat, I allowed it to lapse while I was in the military. I went to take my hazmat and they're like, you know, it's going to be a test weight this long. I was like, ah, screw it. I, I, I'm not pulling any, I'm not pulling tankers right now anyway. I went back, then I went and then someone said, Hey, you want to come call some gasoline? I was like, heck yeah. Went to get my hazmat and get all my guys on hazmat and all that kind of stuff. And you had to go and get a background check to do hazmat. That's pretty easy for someone that's been driving or that's been running around his whole life with a top security clearance with a bunch of pretty fancy caveats on it. And they, and I, and I ended the process was so painful. I didn't do it. I said, guess what? I like this veteran better anyway. I really don't want to go haul gasoline around. But to get my guys tankers and their hazmat endorsements was really, really painful. And then one of the, when, when I, when I play, when I play trucking business, one of my things is I get, I help get guys get their CDL. To get your CDL now, so to get a hazmat endorsement, you got to go through all kinds of things to get a background check. Right now, you got to go to college to get your CDL. Guess what? We already had a shortage of truck drivers. The problem is going to be driving trucks sucks. Uh, anybody that's ever driven truck, there are people that are like, you know what? I just love driving truck, like fantastic. There's something wrong with you. That's absolutely to be away from your family for extended periods of time and and suffer along. I know there's people that are good at it. Don't send me hate mail. Send it to Brian. <laughs> but that, it's not a fun job, it's called work for a reason. They get paid good money for a reason. And now we're making it more difficult to do that. And we're talking about you know, the days. I'll tell you who the days are, the are in this. The they's are Pete Buttigieg, Indiana boy, who runs the Department of Transportation. And I am absolutely positively convinced that they would like to replace the truck driver with autonomous vehicles. And by they, I mean, Pete Buttigieg and the tech sector, the tech sector, uh, Silicon Valley and Pete Buttigieg would very like to replace truck drivers with a autonomous version. Of course, they would love
0: to have the government come in and say, by 2035, all trucks on the road will be autonomous.
1: Yep. and And, and That's that's going to
0: be good for battery manufacturers and electric truck manufacturers and...
1: And you know, the only thing that's stopping autonomous trucks right now is people not being comfortable with it. So, you know, the lady in the minivan like, oh, I don't know if I want to have a computer driving next to me, you know, like she's doing a better job, which she probably isn't. But when she runs out of when she runs out of macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, she'll be all for it. So that that's 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 the day. And I think that's the direction that that is going. And we're going to have some hard times between now and then
0: we got we to kind of head towards wrapping up because I got to get to work before it gets over 100 and go look at some stuff. Uh, uh-huh. You're talking about wanting to get an economist on. I'd love to find the right one, but it's got to kind of be the right one. And the reason I say that, I don't think that... Okay, let me back up. I don't feel that the Democrats, the Republicans, or even the Libertarians... Or anybody else I've ever heard, for that matter, has a good enough understanding of the economics of labor and food production. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't think that there there is a political system or an economic system that adequately addresses the the labor and the energy inputs and the economics of food production.
1: Well, and I think you have to I think you have to pick a side. And this is, you know, like we're talking about the jungle up in Sinclair. You know, that's from my my education and literature. You have to pick a side. You know, so I took a class on labor and literature and uh, there are people that have doctors degrees in literature and they specialize in talking about unions and stuff. You know, they're out there. So you have to pick a side. If you want an education, you got to pick a side at some point and i don't and i don't i don't know enough about it it's it's, you know keynesian labor versus capital that kind of thing so i just like i I'd, i'd like to find someone you know i'd like to explain to someone that i have these autonomous uh mechanisms that go and take uh take forage and turn it into delicious steak and they do it you know all on their own and i only need to see them every so often i'd like to talk to an economist about that so someone knows someone it's out there that's a component we're missing though
0: well, hopefully somebody will write in all right yeah. we're heading out of here so did i forget anything
1: Nope.
0: anything no. Grass- any, any other grind? anything else you want to get off your chest
1: nope you guys get in the grass-fed beef business the demand is i mean you, you got to sell it you got to you got to go and talk to people there's there's a downside to it you got to go talk to people but um everybody you guys if you have replacement heifers that you're going to keep don't give them any shots. Don't give them any antibiotics. Make them go and do it on their own. Keep them on grass.
0: Treat um, that heifer just like the cow that you wish she was.
1: And then out of those replacement heifers, heifers keep a couple extras, and uh, the ones that don't breed, turn them into grass-fed beef. If you cannot, if you don't have the desire to go and get butcher dates and all that kind of stuff, go find someone like myself that wants to buy them day and we'll we'll figure the rest out everybody needs to start transitioning into some type of more sustainable production model because the people that we're selling beef to they stopped breeding a long time ago and their numbers are going down
2: yeah
0: i i, I think that's good advice for everybody in livestock or in agriculture period start looking at different ways to do it and different and know who your customer is And know how you should be serving your customer because things are changing um and i think we're about ready to our society our country we're very close to entering a period of change that will be so rapid it'll make your head spin
1: yep yep we're we're heading into the we're heading into the 1920s and 1930s right
0: now all right where can we find where can people find you on social media to send you hate they can find
1: me at uh Vegan Warrior 2 on TikTok. Uh what else? I have a website. I can't remember the name of the website. Bluecreekfarmbeef.com.
0: Blue Creek Farm Yep. Beef
1: .com and that is uh if you live way on the other side of the country We'd love to talk to you we'd love to have you on the newsletter. I don't know how excited I am about shipping stuff across the country. If you are in Cincinnati, Louisville, or in the surrounding or uh, Indianapolis and you're in the surrounding states, we would love to be part of community with you and get you in touch with someone that can that can help feed you and your family.
0: Great stuff. Good stuff.
1: Thanks, man. I'm honored to be on. I feel, I, I, I feel like people are going to watch this and you're like, we went from Fred Provenza to this dipshit. <laughs>
0: Uh I won't tell you how I feel most of the time when I'm talking to some of my guests. I'm like, people tune in to keep listening to me or are they here for the guests. I'm not can never be sure.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. It was an honor.
0: Well, thanks for doing this, Chip, and uh have a great day, buddy. You too. See ya. You well, have a great week.